Hi everyone and welcome to Animal Welfare Conversations. Join us as we talk to people working towards a common goal to improve animal welfare. We'll chat to veterinary surgeons, veterinary nurses, animal owners, conservationists and others who have an important part to play in care and decision-making about the lives of pets, domestic animals, farm animals, zoo animals or wildlife. We'll find out more about the great work that is already happening to make the lives of animals better. If you care about animals and want a better life for them, then please follow us and join the Animal Welfare Conversation. Hi everybody and welcome to the latest Animal Welfare Conversation podcast. And today I am delighted to be joined with uh, Simon Doherty. Now, many of you will know Simon. He's um, pretty famous in the veterinary world um, from a variety of different roles with uh, BVA and within government um, and now at Queen's University in Belfast. Um, so can we just start off, um, Simon, by telling us a little bit about yourself and your career to date? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I was, um, I was, I was one of those folks who left vet school thinking that they were going to spend their entire career in farm animal practice, um, and that just wasn't wasn't to be. Um, so I qualified from University of Glasgow vet school in two thousand. Um, we were the first year to have full AVMA accreditation, so that was that was a bit of a landmark for um, for for Glasgow at that time. Um, but I went out into into mainly farm animal and equine practice in West Stirlingshire. Um, I obviously then, six, seven months after I graduated, we landed into the middle of the foot and mouth disease outbreak in, in the UK. And I, and I spent six months then working for our, for government, essentially, math as it was at that stage, um, uh, on the foot and mouth disease outbreak. Went back to the practice in Stirlingshire for a while, but ultimately an opportunity came up in my home practice um, in North Down in, in Northern Ireland. And while I, I loved working in Scotland, um, it was the, I suppose, uh, the attraction of doing a bit more dairy um, fertility work and a bit more preventative medicine that, in my home practice that, that drew me home um, at that stage. Fast forward, uh, what, three or four years then after that, um, and I ruptured a ligament in my back, um, and, and that literally saw me falling out of farm animal practice. I could have struggled on, but, you know, I knew that I was going to have a, a, you know, a bad back every springtime, and, and I, I really, you know, it, it just didn't make an awful lot of sense. Um, and I was early enough in my career, I suppose, to take it off in a different direction, and I was getting a lot of very helpful advice from my spinal orthopedic surgeon and my neurosurgeon who were saying, just go and do small animal work. But to be honest with you, it really wasn't while I, you know, while I had an interest in small animal welfare, you know, really kind of medicine and surgery really wasn't my, my thing. It was very much kind of production animals that I was interested in. So I, uh, my career took its first um, sort of um, sharp turn. Um, I was involved then in setting up Veterinary Northern Ireland for two years. I then had seven and a half years at the Veterinary Research Lab at Stormont, during which time I became a certified aquaculture vet. Um, I moved from there. I got, started getting a bit more interested in some of the business consultancy side of things uh, alongside health and welfare. 
Um, and that's when I set up my own consultancy and was awarded a contract with what was at that stage, UK Trade and Investment, became the Department for International Trade. Um, and I worked then as the sector specialist for animal health and welfare and aquaculture um, in DIT. And that took me all over the world for, you know, for a few years. Really interesting, getting that glimpse of animal health and the veterinary world internationally. Um, and from there, then moved into the BVA role. Um, I was junior vice president, then president, then senior vice president. And then this last three years, um, I've sort of been a recent past president. So I fall off the BVA perch um, later this week, actually, in Glasgow at the AGM and Members Day. Um, and I've subsequently then taken up a role at Queen's University in Belfast, where I, I teach animal health and welfare. Um, I've been an honorary position um, at Queen's for about 10 years and then uh, moved into full-time role, um, so really around the time of COVID. Yeah, so it, it's a fascinating career with so many different elements to it. You, you mentioned travelling internationally there and, and seeing veterinary perspectives around the world. How, how do you think the UK compares with other countries on, on animal welfare? Yeah, it's look, it's a really interesting one. I mean, I think um, we can pick out areas where, you know, we have a legacy, I suppose, of, of having done some really groundbreaking um, work in the field of animal welfare that has had a direct effect, um, I think, on other countries. Um, but I think there are times when we still have an awful lot of lessons to learn um, from, from other parts of the globe as well. And, and I think we sometimes put ourselves up on a little bit of a pedestal, which can be quite dangerous. Um, and I think we, you know, it is something we need to be careful of. But look, you know, there are aspects where we've been world leading. So, for example, in laboratory animals, you know, we had the um, Animal Scientific Procedures Act right back as far as 1986. A lot of the work that had been done on the on the build up to that, um, you know, we have done some 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 really sort of groundbreaking work more recently in, in and around our interpretation of sentience and and sentient animals, um, and I think that is then allowing us to influence elsewhere. One of my roles at BVA was to sit as one of the representatives on the UK delegation to the Federation of Veterinarians of Europe (FVE). And within that role, you know, we have a, an opportunity to share our experience and our knowledge of policy development and around health and welfare issues. And certainly around things like, you know, welfare transport, welfare at the time of slaughter and welfare as a component of sustainability. And I think I think we have we have we have a lot to offer on that international stage. But the flip side of that is, you know, how we then do business. And I mean, one of my roles at, um, you know, at DIT when I was there was was to look at some of the trade deals and and, you know, how how much we're kind of willing to almost to give away. Um, whenever we expect a gold standard, uh, level of animal welfare from our own producers, our own farmers, um, our own fish farmers, um. But yet we're maybe doing deals with with countries that would potentially allow export or import rather of of um of goods into the country which maybe haven't met the same levels of 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 welfare um in those in those countries. So 
Um, yeah, it, it is. It's it's an interesting one, and and that dynamic. We live in a global world now, um, so we have to accept that you know international trade is part of you know part of what we do. But there has been a renewed focus more recently than the flip side of that on shortening supply chains and buying locally and and this concept of less and better. So um, looking at how we can support local farmers by buying really good quality and produce locally rather than, you know, just always looking for cheap imports, which potentially are of lower um, lower food quality, but also then lower welfare standards as well. Yeah, it's such a challenge, isn't it, that people want cheaper food, there's an economic crisis, but we also want the best for any animals that we're farming yeah. and how how do we bring all of that together? And and I think that leads quite nicely into my next question about the, the sustainability side of things. So you're quite a vocal advocate for sustainability within the veterinary profession and within food production. So we might be so a glimpse there of, of the answer to this question, but why are you so passionate about sustainability? I just think, you know, I, I mean... I, I've been really fortunate to have, you know, the career that I've had so far. And um, it has given me the opportunity to see beyond, you know, I, I said at the start, you know, I, I left vet school expecting to go farm animal practice and be there the rest of my life. Um, you know, I have had the opportunity, you know, with international travel and with involvement with, you know, some of the veterinary associations and things to really explore lots and lots of different areas. And I guess what I've seen is the opportunity for the veterinary professions, plural, to be very much kind of involved in that kind of conversation um, around health, welfare, productivity. And when you think of the sort of traditional um, model of sustainability being about economics, about the environment, but also the social aspects, it is sometimes really tricky to balance those all off. We we quite often think of sustainability as purely being the environmental piece. So whether we're talking about pet ownership, whether we're talking about food production, whether we're talking about you know the horse industry or zoo animals, it's we we tend to think about the environmental piece. So the environmental footprint of food, you know, where is the food source from? You know, are we bringing soya from, you know, cut down rainforests in South America in order to feed our livestock? Are we, um, you know, are we feeding red meat that could be fit for human consumption to our companion animals? And so we tend to think in terms of that sort of um, environmental piece, but there is obviously the social piece, there's the economic piece to it as well. Why I'm so passionate about it is I just feel that there is an excellent role for us to play. A lot of sort of One Health and sustainability, you know, One Health is recognizing this kind of juxtaposition between people, animals, plants and their shared environment. Okay, but it but it goes beyond that. And it's thinking about the communication, the collaboration, the education. And it's not just we can't do sustainability by ourselves. Farmers can't do sustainability by themselves. Pet owners can't do sustainability by themselves. But when we all get together with other stakeholders, government, private industry, engineers, you know, 
nutritionalists, um, a whole range of different um, uh, professions and, and stakeholders, then we can start creating solutions to some of the sort of global problems that, that we're looking at. So if we are thinking about sustainability in terms of the environmental piece, it is, you know, it, it's just about, about um, you know, creating, co-creating those kind of solutions. I know it's a, it's a bit of a buzzword, this kind of co-creation piece, but, you know, we can't do it by ourselves. But if we work with soil scientists, pharmaceutical industry and so on, we can actually really start creating some of these solutions. And I just, the reason I've become such a firm advocate for it is I think for us as vets, and vet nurses and the veterinary community as a whole, we are in a good position to really be central to the sustainability agenda. Yeah, and and have a voice and be contributing to that and be listened to, and and be part of it because of that that wealth of information that we have, and and share it with all those other people would would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Yeah, and we're used to we're used to thinking out of the box. You know, quite often whenever we work with medical colleagues, you know, they tend to be just uh, you know, and this isn't a criticism, but they tend to be a bit more sort of tunnel vision. They're used to dealing with one species, and they're maybe used to dealing with a very sort of niche area of one species. I mean, even even if we've become specialists within farm animal practice or companion animal practice, we tend to see more species uh, we tend to think out of the box a little bit more in terms of our problem solving and, and how we go about doing things and i think it's that it's that next step of reaching other people and um, one of the examples that i give you know i was involved quite early in my role at dit UKT, I think it was possibly still UKTI at that stage, but I was involved in the uh, the opening of the V Hive at the um, at the University of Surrey, and it was just a fantastic collaboration. It just seemed like a, a you know this kind of perfect melding of the new vet school at the University of Surrey, along with their five G innovation centre. So it was kind of thinking about telecommunications and wireless networks and all that kind of stuff, and um, their business school. And Zoetis as a you know as a as a as a global animal health company, and that collaboration was was creating some really exciting opportunities and um, to look at um, health and welfare um, applications, digital applications, um, and and sensor technology and things like that that were then helping to improve how we looked at preventative medicine or how we looked at treating um, chronic conditions, and it was this melding of engineers and uh, business people with pharmaceutical and academic and vets and it just seemed like a you know it seemed like a great mix yeah and and, and thinking about that um, and in this podcast we want to give and highlight good ex- examples of good welfare so is, is there anything that comes to mind from that melting pot where you brought all these people together and um, or even in other parts of your career, but are there any examples that come to mind of of improving welfare through innovation? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I mean, I've just given an example of innovation in terms of digital innovation and, and boxes of smart tricks, you know? Um, and I mean, there's loads of these wearable devices out there now, you know, for companion animals, for farm animals. Now we've got tags and collars and things that go around their legs and things like that. 
Um, that are basically Fitbits for animals. And, and we can get a huge amount of data from those that can help both in terms of production, but also then in terms of welfare. So early detection of mastitis, early detection of lameness, so those, those kind of things. But sometimes innovation isn't necessarily about a box of tricks. Sometimes innovation is about a service or how we approach a particular problem. Um, I'm a huge fan of cow signals. So cow signals is um, about, it really is about back to basics animal husbandry. Cow signals is a, a, is a concept that was developed in the Netherlands by two vets, Jip Dreesen and Jan Holsten. And, and they, it's very much about sort of back to basics animal husbandry. Um, it's what is the cow telling us? Um, it's it's a, it's a way of visualizing um and thinking about things slightly differently, you know, it's it it it's uh, you look at a group of cows, uh, you know, maybe in a, in a in a house, and you say, well, okay, why is that cow waiting? Okay, so this concept of waiting cows, um, and what's she waiting for? Is she waiting because there isn't enough room at the food barrier? Is she waiting because she she you know she's not lying down properly in the cubicle because cow comfort's not maximized? Um, and those those kind of things, and the concepts then go go forward. They've got a a, a program then called Young Stock Signals, which is about calf health and, and young stock, um, and it's it's about applying those kind of um, principles then right right across the board. It's a, it's an innovation in some ways, you know, but it it's back to basics animal history. It's just a new way of looking at things, and sometimes we need that kind of structure. We all know in some ways what we should be doing um, and farmers are the same. Um, but sometimes just a new way of thinking about that will help them then to, to actually deliver what they, they they know that they should be doing. Yeah, that, that's quite fascinating because you, you're making me think back a long time ago now when I was a vet student. Um, and I must admit, sitting in animal husbandry lectures, being taught how to lay a concrete floor and how to build a barn with the correct ventilation. It, I was didn't really understand why they were teaching us that. And it wasn't until being out as a farm vet and seeing the pneumonia cases, and then it all falls into place. And something like that sounds quite a marvellous way of making all those facts about behaviour and about buildings seem relevant to yeah, why and, that's important yeah and it's about doing it in quite a sort of fun down-to-earth kind of way so rather than sort of quoting the number of lux of light that you need in a house and um, basically what they say is that you should be able to lie down in every cubicle in the cubicle house and read a newspaper you know it's as simple as that you know if you can read a newspaper in every cubicle in the cubicle house then there's enough light okay yeah. Um, and and they have a few other sort of things that if you are standing beside a cubicle and you drop to your knees, it shouldn't hurt. You know, if there's enough straw and and you know, and whenever you drop to your knees, your knees aren't wet. Um, again, the cubicle's dry and it's actually there's enough comfort there. And um, because if you think about a cow, you know, a big Holstein cow that's sort of going to lie down in the cubicle, um, you know, if they have to clatter themselves down onto the floor. Um, it's you know you can you can understand why they stand for longer instead of trying to lie down. It's yeah. that it's that sort of level. 
So you know, cow signals in in itself, and I mean, you and 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 Jan will will you know they'll say it themselves. I mean, it's it's not rocket science, but the actual delivery of cow signals is something that is is fantastic. I've been involved, you know, with and and you know, Yup and I are good friends now. You know, we'll be in touch now and again. He was actually he was across doing a workshop in uh, uh, Northern Ireland there not that long ago. Um, but he, uh, yeah, it, it's not. There's nothing really new about it, but it's just the approach to it that's that's slightly different and engaging farmers and understanding. And I think that's the the same right across the board. You know, when we're talking about conversations around health and welfare, um, there is a lot of social science going into that now, which is really interesting. You know, it used to be that it was just down to the vet to teach the farmer, or you know, and that was it. But now we're, we're, there's a lot more involved in the time, type of techniques that we use to change behavior. I mean, a huge amount of work has gone in the last 20 years reducing antibiotic usage um, and getting a very different um, approach to that. Um, yes, there's, some of it has been driven by farm quality assurance and the supermarkets looking to reduce um, antibiotic use, but actually just understanding why vets and farmers use antibiotics in certain ways then helps you to reduce refine replace and um and that has become um a much more sustainable way to approach antibiotic usage yeah because if we can all see why we're doing it and we can understand why it's much more likely to work um i wanted to go back to the sustainability question um, and just ask you a little bit more about that and what you see as the current challenges for the vet profession and animal producers relating to sustainability? Like so many things, um, quite often it, it, it is about resources and investment. Um, it's having the it's having the time to learn about sustainability. I mean, there's some fantastic resources out there. Um, I was involved in sort of finding and getting vet sustain up and running. Um, Laura Hyam was the the driver behind it, um, but there were there were a few of us at the outset. I remember Laura making contact with me and saying, "I've got this idea, not quite sure what it's going to look like yet." But we decided quite early on that the last thing we needed was yet another membership association within the veterinary profession. So, Vet Sustain was established in Scotland as a community interest company. We registered in Edinburgh, um, and yeah, it was very much about creating sort of toolkits and uh, resources that would make it a little bit easier for vets and vet nurses and the whole vet team to to think about sustainability, to start thinking about what small steps they could all take. And I think a lot of people get quite um, sort of blown away by, you know, some of the things that they see, you know, whenever they watch the Attenborough programs and they they see the effect of climate change um, on the planet, um, they kind of get a bit, you know, um, there's a bit of climate anxiety now and, and people are so blown away by it all that they're just not, they just don't know where to start. Whereas if rather than sort of a small group of people trying to take lots and lots of action, if you get lots and lots of people, even starting with some small actions, that can make a massive difference. Yeah. So if we can 
think about our use of anesthetic gases, inhalational anesthetic gases, if we can think about our use of antibiotics, if we can think about how much we need to use single-use plastic gowns and drapes or disposable syringes and, and things like that. Um, you know, can we use, can we go back to sort of slightly old school, you know, cloth drapes and gowns and things like that? And where, where's the best of both? It's not just one or the other, but it may be that we use cloth gowns and drapes for lump removals and routine surgeries, but we still stick with the single use plastics for the spinal neurosurgery and the, ortho, the high end orthopedics. But it's just getting those sort of balances um, in, in place and, and helping people to understand. But it is, there's an element of it as time as well. You know, vets, vet nurses, the practice team need time to set aside and invest in that. But I think it is incumbent on all of us to, to really set an example. Um, and, and there's been some fantastic initiatives. The Veterinary um, B Society have have been able to kind of encourage people to think about planting a pot of pollinator flowers outside the practice and you know just to get people thinking about that and we don't necessarily think about bees in the UK as being a veterinary species but um, you know quite often the medications that are required are on uh, you know um, under the prescribing of, of veterinary surgeons um, so it is it, it is uh, incumbent on all of us to sort of play our play our part in in sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 thinking about the sustainability side of things in relation to welfare, how how do you think we can improve animal welfare and at the same time be more sustainable? Yeah. So look, you know, I think the important thing for us as vets is really to think in terms of veterinary sustainability, we very much kind of see welfare as being at the core of it. So if you want to think about sustainability being this kind of end goal where everything's in some kind of balance and one health as being part of the journey towards that. So recognizing that we need this sort of transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach to, to improve sustainability. So very much kind of thinking of welfare as part of sustainability right from the start, I think is, is a really important part of it. It's not just that environmental part. It's not just the, the, the economic part, which will improve productivity and, and, and maybe think about the environment, but the social aspect then and, and this kind of um, social license to keep animals or to produce food um, very much includes welfare. And therefore, we, you know, for, for it to be sustainable, um, we can't have it improving the environment or doing less damage to the environment and, we, and, and, and have it as economic as possible without thinking about welfare. So welfare absolutely is a core part of sustainability. Um, yeah. And we have to we have to think of it in that kind of way. There's no point in reducing costs, as I say. No point in in improving the planet unless we're we're maintaining um, high levels of of acceptable welfare. Yeah. So all these things that we need to juggle all together, and that that kind of links back to your earlier point about innovation and bringing lots of different specialties together, and everybody all working together to to take it forward. Um, we have a running question through every podcast, and I know you've 
slightly answered this already, but I'm going to ask the question. Um, and, and that is, what does animal welfare mean to you? I, I think the, the, the modern definitions of, of welfare and, and how we think about welfare go way beyond, you know, Bramble and the Five Freedoms. And, and obviously they then kind of went forward into the five welfare needs. So sort of thinking about the five freedoms slightly more positively um, became the, the welfare needs. And I think certainly recently then there has been an, an evolution towards a better life for animals and a good life. But it's then about understanding what that actually means in real terms. Um, it's it's thinking about how do we know if an animal is having a good life um, and thinking about, and, and sometimes that requires some really clever thinking. So, I, I mean, an example that I'll give is, is some of... Uh, the work that was carried out at Queen's University, um, you know, a number of years ago, on um, cephalopods and decapods, um, and you know, very much kind of fed into the sentience discussion, um, and that involved some really smart experimental des design to see whether, in fact, crabs and lobsters felt pain, and whether they were in fact sentient as opposed to just being a kind of reflex type reaction. The design sometimes of experiments can be really important. Um, and just expanding our knowledge um, and thinking a bit out of the box leads us on then to, so there's been um, a lot of talk recently then in terms of welfare inputs and welfare outputs on how we actually measure those. So instead of just saying, well, an animal's got enough food or it's got shelter or, um, you know, yeah, clearly it's not in pain or distress, you know, that's enough, you know. But it's actually then thinking beyond that as to, you know, what what choices those animals would make if they were in a different situation. Um, and how important that actually is to those animals to be able to make those choices. Now, that then starts, you know, the danger of, of thinking about welfare in that kind of way is sometimes it can, it feels like it can become a little bit anthropomorphic um, and we need to be very careful, you know, with that. Um, it's not to say that anthropomorphism sometimes isn't a bad thing because it, it can help people to understand welfare um, if you can describe it in a way that other people can understand. Um if that makes sense. But, but but we have to be careful that we don't take a step too far and we're trying to, you know, portray our own emotions um, or our own senses on, on, on animals of lots and lots of different um, evolutionary um, levels. Um, but it is important that we have that evidence base. And where, um, we, where we don't have a strong evidence base, we have to be thinking precautionary um, because we didn't have the evidence, you know, necessarily 20, 30, 40 years ago to say that, you know, um, crabs or lobsters were sentient, but we now have that. Um, but I think even before some of those um, experiments were designed, um, you know, we, we were starting to to go on a, on a journey with that. And I think it's important that we continue to go on that journey. Now, it's also important that we we take into consideration some of the unintended consequences of, of thinking about welfare 
um, and thinking about sort of welfare in, in the broader sense. I mean, clearly we cannot protect every crab in a sea loch the way that we would protect every tiger in every zoo, you know. Um, so, so there has to be a, a balance there between how we um, think about welfare and, um, and how we actually treat individuals or groups of animals. Yeah, it, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I, I was speaking to um, one of the other podcasts, we chatted to a vet nurse who's very much into wildlife. And and that approach of, well, nature itself is quite cruel. You think about what happens, you know, animals get sick in the wild, there's nobody there to treat them. Um, and, and at what point do we intervene and if we intervene, are we actually going to make things worse in the bigger picture? Um, it, it's a very difficult question to, to know what the answer actually is, isn't it? Yeah, and, and understanding understanding the natural behaviour, you know, again, you know, it's the it's the it's the it's the old uh, sort of chick getting thrown out of the nest. Um, sort of thing, you know, and uh, our natural instinct is to pick it up and care for it, you know, and um, but but quite often it is a case of actually that's better left. It's probably you know it, it, there's a, there's a, a possibility that it's going to get picked up and you know by the by you know by the mother and taken back to the nest or whatever it happens to be, um, you know. But th- there are so many different examples of where, um. We make assumptions, you know, based on our um, based on our own experience, rather than you know what the best experience is for for that animal. Um, and we do it. Look, we do it all the time. We do it with our companion animals. We sometimes do it with our farm animals. Um, but it's it is about getting the the best practice that we possibly can based on the evidence that we have. Um, but always working then on that sort of precautionary principle that, that we can we can you know we can continue to do better. Yeah, yeah. You're you're reminding me. I I, I always have anecdotes, I apologize, but you're you're reminding me of um the sheep that, that I used to have. Um and mum had given birth to twins, but for whatever reason decided that she didn't like the boy lamb. She just wasn't going to accept him. I went out and found that she had actually nudged them and thrown them into the bucket of water so I have to save this lamb so I ended up rearing him as as a pet lamb and he ended up staying with us for 10 years he was my top for you know and he was the friendliest top you're ever going to meet um because there's many a top has knocked me into next week um because they're quite dangerous um but yeah that example you know if that had been yeah, a wild animal in that situation, then he just wouldn't have survived for whatever. I don't know why she decided that she wasn't taking to that lamb and she was only rearing one. Um, but yeah, we just don't know what what goes on with them, do we? And we can yeah. only do our best. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. all we can do. I, you live and work in Northern Ireland, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Obviously, I'm in Scotland, so I don't know a lot about what's happening in, in Northern Ireland, just what I see in the, the television. Um, and in particular, Brexit is, is having an impact. So how how is that affecting the, the veterinary profession and 
animal welfare? Yeah, so, I mean, I think probably first and foremost, I mean, I think the, 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 the crunchiest elements have been around probably the supply of medicines, um, uh, which is which is a, an ongoing issue. So this was created really by Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol and really wasn't fully corrected by the Windsor Agreement. So at the minute, we are in a period of an extended grace period um, to the supply arrangements and the licensing arrangements for veterinary medicines here in Northern Ireland. But the danger is that we're going to be caught um, ultimately, between the UK Brexited um, arrangements um, and also then the the, the footprint um, that we have on the island of Ireland remaining uh, to an extent within the EU, um, and and that's it's it's been affecting practices around the the border or practices that work across the border. So a lot of our Pig vets, for example, work north-south. Uh, poultry vets work north-south. Um, equine vets quite often will have clients on both sides of the border, as well as those practices that are both you know, dealing with maybe farm animals and, and companion animals right on the border. So that medicine supply issue is, is and, and the, the future licensing arrangements is certainly one big, big tricky one that I think is still to be ironed out. Another one, obviously, then, is movement backwards and forwards across the Irish Sea of animals and food products. So still a lot of gray areas and, and some of that again comes back to resourcing. Um, you know, a lot of gray areas around um, you know, movement of companion animals, movement of livestock backwards and forwards across the RSC and what the requirements are. Um, I mean certainly the you know the requirements now look like pet passport rabies vaccination tapeworm which is crazy whenever you think about two animal two two islands which are um completely free, free of rabies um you know it just then becomes a sort of a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare rather than sort of being anything to do with animal health or animal welfare the effects on animal welfare i suppose at this stage are probably more to do with the fact that we don't currently have a functioning northern ireland assembly rather than Brexit per se. Um, so, you know, we've, we, we are in a, a bit of a political stalemate at the minute and, and we don't have a functional assembly. And that is taking us a little bit further behind with, with some of our welfare. Um, I mean, certainly the Department of Agriculture, um, uh, Environment and Rural Affairs, or DERA, um, still are doing the best they can. They've you know the, the the veterinary officers and so on are out doing doing the job that they that they can do, um, and welfare is always a component of that. Um, but in terms of moving things forward, you know we are because of that sort of political stalemate. Animal health and welfare is devolved is a devolved issue, um, and currently we're not then moving forward with things. Um, you know as much as you're seeing in Scotland, Wales, or England. So I mean, some you know really sort of key examples of things moving forward around things like glue traps or the use of snares and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. There's been some real progress in in particularly Scotland and Wales. Um, on some of those issues and, and we're just you know we're just not seeing that in Northern Ireland at the minute. I, I think you've highlighted really well there just the 
the the end result that all of this it's all very well all these high powered political discussions and high level things but on the ground if you're wanting to improve welfare of wildlife and ban glue traps and snares and things like that it's really difficult to just move that on which is really quite frustrating so my last question is about the future and and thinking about animal welfare sustainability animal health what would you like the future to look like i think it again comes back to that balance that i was talking about before um you know i'd like to see i'd like to see good levels of investment in the sector so that you know f- farmers pet owners industry government all have the ability to create a better future for animals i'd also like to see a broader i mean this podcast is largely about about welfare again i think we all have a role to play across the veterinary teams across the veterinary community at articulating more about animal welfare and what it really means what is a good life for a companion animal it's not just avoiding brachycephalics or um or not cropping ears um or you know um avoiding vegetarian diets or whatever you know all those big issues are really important okay but actually what is a good life for a companion animal with so many pandemic puppies you know that are all currently you know being left at home now um and you know didn't really get the right kind of socialization and things during during covid and um, you know how are we how are we going to improve the welfare of those animals going forward you, you mentioned an interesting point there so I've, I've obviously been chatting to a lot of people over the past few weeks about welfare and and education is a common theme that comes up in a lot of those conversations but you mentioned investment and I'm I'm pretty sure that's the first time that that's been mentioned about the financial side of things and people investing in all of this work to take things forward yeah but it's money it's money and time but if you think about the, the you know the traditional again, I'm sort of thinking about the the traditional academic models. If you're going to get improved, if we keep doing the same as what we've always been doing, we'll get the same outcome, right? And mm-hmm. um, so we need to think about how we're doing things differently. Now we can label that as innovation, okay? But if we're going to get innovation, we have to drive it, and if we're going to drive it so that innovation is improving productivity, it's creating more money in the system, it's creating more time uh, for for people to do other things. You know, you have to have that investment to pump prime that cycle in the first place. Now, if you get that investment in there and you can get farmers doing things better, you can get pet owners doing things a bit better, it should then become a bit more self-perpetuating, you know, because if they are able to create more with less, have less impact on the environment and be involved in in sort of agro-economical schemes and things like that there. Um, It then becomes a bit more sort of self-perpetuating, but you need that investment there in the first place. You need farmers to be getting a a fair price for their produce in the first place in order to drive that cycle of innovation. Thank you, Simon. That's a fascinating conversation. Um, As always, I'm going away with more questions. Than I have answers. Um, but I think we've covered 
so much. And, and you've also highlighted um, the vet passport side of things because you have done so many different amazing things in your career. Like you say, you, you thought you were going purely focus on being the farm vet. That's what I also thought I was going to be. Um, and different things happened um, and we can adapt and contribute in different ways. So, Absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much for that, Simon. Um, all the best. You're welcome.